You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. As we approach Good Friday and Easter Sunday, uh, our preaching really approaches the cross as well. And so we're following Jesus' journey to the cross. And uh, today, this morning, we find ourselves in John chapter 18. So let's um, go to John 18, starting in verse 1, as we read God's word. Jesus had just finished uh, preaching, actually uh, praying for his disciples. And uh, we pick up in chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is God's word. Here we are in a garden, and this scene, uh, it's not implied, but it evokes another garden. At least it does for me, and, and emotions that come with what happened in that garden, the Garden of Eden, at the very beginning. And it really is a story of paradise lost. Paradise of the innocence of humankind with God, enjoying the, uh, the existence of harmony with God's love and peace and relationship, all that Adam, Adam and Eve had with God and with one another, and this bitterness as well, all that is lost in dramatic fashion due to sin and rebellion from God, kicked out of the garden to never return, punishment of death and toil and a, a life of struggle that would never end until the new creation. But in that garden, the gospel was first preached. The good news was given to the serpent who deceives Eve and Adam and also to Eve herself. God promised something would happen. God promised that he would reverse the effect of all that had been uh, done that was so bad. He would reverse the effects of the curse. Satan, who works evil, would be crushed, and the offspring of Eve, would, who the Apostle Paul and Scripture tells us that it is Jesus, would, would defeat sin, and he would crush the serpent's head. And in this dramatic fashion, we see this confrontation in this garden again, another garden, a different garden, but we see bitterness and sweetness together. 
Bitter is, what is bitter is so clear. We see this arrest and beating and death of Christ that is now closer than ever that we have seen in the gospel story. Judas, a friend of Jesus, a close friend, betraying Jesus, betraying all of his friends. Earlier that evening, Jesus is with his disciples. He now stands with them before a lynching mob, ready to take him away and to kill him, to to condemn him and to murder him. But there's something sweet here as well. What is sweet is not seen by the disciples until much later. They don't understand it now. And, and if we were reading this for the first time, we wouldn't be understanding it now either. But we get to look at God's word and confront this, this scene with the full knowledge of, of God and the full knowledge of what he has done and the story of of the life and death and resurrection of Christ, seeing it within that broad story. And what does this, this confrontation teaches us? Something so wonderful about the character and plan of God through Jesus Christ. Three things it's going to show us this morning. It's going to show us the, that uh, the knowledge of God is boundless. His power is unrivaled and his goodness is constant. Let's first look at his knowledge. His knowledge is boundless. It has no limits. He knows everything. Here, once again, the, the author, John, gives us insight into the mind of Christ. What did Jesus know going into this? What didn't he know? We know that he, he knows everything. Once again, we see that Jesus is not confused. He's not taken by surprise. He's not thrown off by the circumstances that are happening. He is as steady as a tree as he faces Sheer chaos in his life. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they are telling the story. They're giving an eyewitness testimony of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And every single one of them make it such a clear point that Jesus knew exactly what would happen. But John does it here the most. He is most emphatic, emphatic about Jesus and what he knew. Jesus is able to move confidently throughout this chaos, throughout this impending condemnation in the world and death on the cross with such confidence because he knows who he is. He knows where he came from. He knows where he is going. He knows the character and nature of his father. He knows it all. The first hint we get of this is found in verse 4 where it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus is not shocked by anything. He, know, he knows that he would die. He knows when he would die and how he would die. He knew that Peter would betray him. He knew he would die and return to the Father. He knew that his glory would be restored in heaven. He knew that he would be rewarded for his righteousness and perfect obedience. He knew when people were sick or lonely or afraid or troubled. He knew exactly what to give to people in order to comfort them. He knew these things because the Father knows all things, and everything the Father knows, he tells his Son. You know, while you and I try to predict the future, at very best, we can predict it. We react to it the best that we can. God already knows. Not everyone 
believes this or is able, it, it can grasp this. Some say that, it, that God is just very smart. He is so smart. He is so intelligent that he is able to predict the future with extremely high level of accuracy, kind of like a skilled weatherman, right? Or weather woman. <laughs> so skilled, so, so smart that he gets it right most of the time. Some say that God might know the future but has no control over it. But what we see through Scripture is that God not only knows the future, but that he is in control of it. He is the one who ordains the future. He decrees all that will come to pass. And so he knows what will happen because he has written the story of all that will happen. So what? What difference does that make? What difference does it make in our lives here on a Sunday, tomorrow on a Monday, what difference does it make that God knows the future? Well, if, God, if, nothing is out, if nothing happens outside of God's knowledge in all of creation, that you and I are never hidden from his sight. We never fall from his care, not even in the most painful of circumstances. He knows Every detail of our circumstances, not just of what happens to us, but also what happens within us. All of creation is laid bare and clear before the eyes of God every moment of every day. And so are you and I. Our hearts are open in every molecule of our being. And everything in our lives, God sees clearly to every detail our thoughts, our motives, our words, our actions. He hears us when we gossip. He hears us when we grumble. He knows our lustful thoughts. He knows when we are complaining. He knows our desires, our shortcomings. He knows it all. He is intimately familiar with every inclination of your mind and your heart and your thoughts and your temptations at every moment. His insights into your life are limitless and his knowledge of you is boundless. Naturally, naturally an unfiltered knowledge of, of our lives by another person should make us feel very unsettled, very vulnerable, very weird and afraid and kind of uncomfortable. And this is an unsettling reality to be known that intimately. God is not impressed with you or me. How's that for a sermon point? God is not impressed. He is not impressed. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me, and he does not have the privilege of having the illusion of our pretending and that we are somehow impressing him with our lives or our thoughts. He's not impressed with you, but he loves you. He knows you. He cares for you. What difference does it make that he knows all things? Well, he still communicates his affection to us. And it's not because he's confused with us. It's not because he is disillusioned with our lives, our ability, our, our hearts, our intentions. This infinite knowledge of the heart and soul of these people that Jesus has and he's, he's, still, he's still thinking of his disciples. He still says, if you seek me, let them go, knowing full well 
who they are and their weaknesses, knowing full well that Peter will deny him in a moment. He will deny him and hide from him, knowing that he is, he is saying to these imperfect people, let them go. He is loving them to the very end. He continues to think of his disciples. He is confident only because he knows what will happen. He trusts in the plan of God, no matter how painful. To know all things would make you completely and fully confident. You know, during my, my freshman year at the U of A, I had a job where uh, I went door to door selling oil changes. This was not my favorite job. Selling Fletcher's oil changes, like punch cards and stuff. You know, you can buy 10 and you get like five free. And I remember visiting one house, knocking on the door, and we did this in the evenings, me and another, another colleague. Uh, I was with, an, I can't even, that's not really, you can't even call him a colleague, right? It's like, it's like another employee, I guess. We went in pairs, and <clears throat> uh, he was uh, Hispanic, and we went to this Hispanic home. It's relevant here because we knocked on the door. The people living there uh, didn't speak a word of English. Uh, I did not comprehend or could speak, uh, could not speak uh, Spanish. And like many in Tucson, this was kind of this bilingual household, multicultural household, uh, and we're welcomed in. And, and right before we cross the, the threshold, my Hispanic uh, friend looks back at me, pauses, and he says this to me, and I'll never forget it. He looks back and says, they're going to offer you something to drink. You take it, you drink it, and you drink all of it. And I said to him, no thanks, I'm not thirsty. <laughs> and he said, no, this wasn't a question, I'm not asking. He says, you will be offered something to drink, you will drink it, you will drink all of it, and you will say thank you. And I was like, okay. There's two things my friend knew. He knew, coming into this house, what was going to happen, and he knew the motivation behind what was going to happen. We would be offered a drink. We would be offered a drink, and behind that offer was, was goodness, hospitality, the welcome of strangers like they were friends. I learned a lot that day. It was special. It was touching. It happened just as he said it would happen, that I would be treated like a friend even though I was a stranger, that I'd be offered a cold drink on a hot day and be treated with kindness. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the reason for why it was going to happen, and although I was confused and startled and a little, well, I'll just refuse it and everything will be fine. He wasn't. And luckily, he helped me not make a fool of myself and allowed me to be able to reciprocate and just receive that honor from this family to drink my drink with full gratitude. When we know what we're going into, it changes how we act. It changes how we feel. It changes how we live. Jesus knew what would happen. He knew what God planned for him, and not just what would happen. He knew the motivation behind everything that was going to happen. That God would turn even the most horrendous and despicable act in all of creation. That he would plan it for good. That he would use it to bring about his good purposes. And this act was still, at this point, invisible to his disciples. So they reacted. They were stunned. They were grieved at all that would happen. And Jesus even continued to tell them, you don't understand what's happening right now. You don't know why this is happening. But you will know. And when you do find out, you will be comforted. You will be confident. You will be at peace. 
You see, in, in our day-to-day, what is comforting is that God knows it all, that he knows us completely, and that he has also planned it for some good that is at this time still invisible to us. We don't know the nuance, the details of how things will work out for our good, but we are told that they will for all who love him. His knowledge is boundless, and this is good news for those who seek their comfort in him. His power is unrivaled. He doesn't just know it all. He can do it all. He is powerful and has no equal. Continuing in this story, we look and we, are, we see that we're told that this band of Roman soldiers come to where Jesus and the disciples were meeting. And this is a descriptive and quantitative word that John uses here, a band of soldiers, or more specifically, a division of the Roman legion. A legion is 6,000 soldiers. A band or um, division of soldiers is about a tenth of a legion. What John is telling us here is that 600 armed and trained military personnel approach Jesus ready for battle. The scene here is just breathtaking. To f- they come here, this, this hundreds of the world's finest military personnel approach a homeless carpenter and his teenage fisherman friends. And the army approaches him, and Jesus meets them, leaves his friends, meets out with them, approaches this army, and virtually says to them, which is just unthinkable, what do you want? (laughs) More specifically, who do you want? He doesn't hide behind his friends. You could hear 600 soldiers approaching in the middle of the night. They don't run away and hide among the trees As far as men go, Jesus is the prototypical man's man. He is tough and confident and brave. He's tender and meek when he needs to be, compassionate without end. And these things are never cowardice, never weakness. He is fully human and a perfect one at that. But we see here in this moment, among other isolated moments within his life. He is also fully God. And when, it, when, when he asks them, who are you seeking? And they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And he replies with, I am he. We are told that they stumble backwards and fall to the ground. This is incredible. What are they afraid of? This unarmed carpenter and, 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 and this fisherman friend? You know, we could come up with some good reasons and good guesses as to why they fell backward. You know, some would say, oh, they fell in awe and reverence and worship. Well, usually when you're worshiping, you don't fall backwards, but forwards, right? So maybe that's not it. Some would even think that, someone say when Jesus said, I am he, it was the name of God and the glory of God just like kind of powerfully floored them and just made them fall over. 
Some would say that maybe they were startled, that they didn't expect that he would be out there and be there in front. And so they were just so in shock that, oh, you're Jesus? And they were just startled and fell down. But that's a bit strange. I mean, he was famous in the country at this time. And Judas was there and the religious leaders were there. They all knew Jesus. Whatever the meaning was, the emphasis is abundantly clear. The word and presence and power of Jesus is the word and presence and power of God Almighty. And even hundreds of the world's greatest armed soldiers have no confidence in their own strength in the presence of God Almighty. And and for a moment, some extraordinary power came forward with the word that was spoken by Christ when he literally said, I am, that just floored them literally to the ground. Jesus emptied himself of his glory at the incarnation, gave up of his privilege and honor and glory that he had from eternity past. He emptied himself. He, he restrained certain qualities, uh, certain uh, uses of his nature. But it's sometimes that, that glory would come out, that power would come out and was unrestrained but went out. This may be one of those times. Often uh, in John's construction of this, of this phrase, I am, literally the Greek, ego, a me, when these words are constructed together, G, uh, John is indicating the divine name of God. And as Jesus identifies himself as ego, a me, or I am, and those who come to arrest him fall to the ground, As strange as that is, it's hard to escape the conclusion of what is being displayed here in the power of the name of God. It is the Greek equivalence of the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh. And when Jesus evokes this name and these words, he is saying, saying, I am God Almighty in your presence. And this momentary exercise of power struck them with terror. For those who are against Jesus and who have come to stand opposed to him, there's nothing more terrifying. For to reject Christ is to reject the Almighty. But to trust in Jesus is to trust in the Almighty. To listen to the words of Jesus is to listen to the words of God Almighty. To be in the hands of Jesus is to be in the loving hands of God Almighty. To be friends with Jesus is to be friends with God Almighty. To trust in Jesus is to trust in God Almighty. What you and I believe to be true about God is the most important thing in our lives. Who do we believe that Jesus is? Just a friend, just a great teacher, just a good example. He never presents himself as merely just that. But he presents himself all throughout Scripture and in sometimes so explicitly in Scripture as God Almighty in the flesh, fully human, but fully God. And his intimate knowledge of us and all of creation 
combined with his unrivaled power, it is truly of no hope to us unless he is also very good. Not just very good, but constantly good. And this is what he is for us as well. His goodness is constant. Moving on in our passage, learning about his goodness, there's a lot, there's a lot that happens in this short passage. There's so much in here, and frankly, it's pretty chaotic. What a, what a mess of a scene. What, a chaos, what chaos is happening here? 600 trained men for battle are expecting a confrontation, preparing for the worst. Judas is terrified. He's hiding behind people with weapons. Peter's not having any of it. Pulls out a butter knife, cuts a guy's ear off. I mean, can you put yourself in this scene and just be like, what is happening? The world is falling apart here. It's frankly just a mess. And Jesus is the only one keeping his cool. He's the only one keeping his head about it all. In his darkest hour, he is the most confident, calm, and courageous, and still compassionate for his disciples and even his enemies. Then John, the writer of this eyewitness testimony, draws our focus to one verse that ties it all together. In verse 11, where Jesus asks the rhetorical question of Peter, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? By this point in this story, we should know what Jesus is talking about. He has mentioned this proverbial cup before. What does the cup mean? It means his death. It means the cross. It means the torture. It means the laying down of his life for sinners. It is his destiny. The cup is the purpose for which Jesus was born. The cup is the unrestrained fullness of God's holy wrath poured out against my sin and your sin. For your sins, for my sins, Jesus drank this cup. Jesus, thinking of his disciples, thinking of you and I, when he said, and he's looked at this army of soldiers to take away his life, in the most excruciating of all ways, should I not drink this cup for those that I love? You cannot see this and think anything other than the goodness of God. But not only is goodness for you, but how in God's knowledge and power, how he bends all circumstances, even the worst of all circumstances, to fulfill his good purposes in creation. Not just that he is good as, uh, by nature, right? He's not just benevolent. He's not just kind. He's not just caring. Of course, we would say, well, God is good in his temperament, but also how he bends all circumstances to bring about his good. That is what is happening here as well. I get asked a lot, and for very good reason, how could so much pain that I am experiencing have and all that I have gone through, how could this be within the scope of God's goodness for me? Just give me a little like this if you're, yeah. Answer that, pastor. Answer that. That's a painful question. Let me just sit with you for a second and just say, yeah. 
That's a painful question. And a question I don't have an easy answer to. But I think there is something here that speaks to this. That Jesus knew the suffering that would come his way. He did not avoid the suffering, but we are told that he actually made himself available to it. He went to places where Judas knew where to find him. He didn't hide. He made himself available to humiliation, suffering, and crucifixion. He had the very power and authority of God himself to choose not to exercise that suffering. He could stop it all at any moment. We're told that. He tells Pilate this very thing. He said, if I wanted to, I could call down legions of of angels, an army of heaven to rescue me from this hour. But I, I, I won't. Because he knew the goodness of God and in the power of God to bend even the worst of circumstances to bring about his good purposes in his life and in the world. As you think of these hard questions about pain and God's goodness, think about this. If God did not spare his son, the perfect son of God, if he did not spare Jesus from suffering to bring about his good purposes, why would he spare us, his imperfect children, from suffering to bring about his good purposes? If Jesus wasn't good enough in that sense, you know what I'm talking about, to be spared from pain, why would you and I, ones that have rebelled against God, sinned against God, in thought, word, and deed, and multiple times throughout our day. And then to think that, that, that pain would not come our way. Jesus found rest in the goodness of God, his Father. And he walked willingly into the hands of evil men, knowing that he was always supremely in God's good hands. You and I will be victims to the schemes and actions of evil men and women in our life. And it cannot be avoided. You and I will be victim to evils of this world. You and I were born into wickedness, born into a world that was broken. We are broken by others. And we, frankly, break ourselves in our own sin. None of that is outside of God's hands. What cup has, has God given you to drink? Loneliness, despair, pain, confusion, fear, anxiety, betrayal, sickness, depression, unreturned love, financial struggle, relational conflict, stress over the future. I mean, what cup of burden, what cup of pain has God said to you, drink this? And you say, I don't want to. It's a very understandable conversation to have. But listen, whatever cup you are given to drink today, there is one cup that those who trust in Jesus will never have to drink. And it is the cup of God's punishment. It is the cup of God's, the fullness of his wrath against your sin. And Jesus gladly drank that cup for you. 
bad things will happen and hard things will happen, but you will never have to drink that cup. And that is his goodness. That is his goodness. And because he took that cup, we will never be out of his constant care. And, 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 it, and there's so much beautiful things that Jesus said to his disciples that they had no idea what he was talking about. Like when he's eating with them and they're drinking the cup of the vine, as he says, they're, they're drinking wine together. And he says, one day we're going to drink together in heaven. And that party will never end. So even though you are drinking bitter cups today in your life, one day you will never have to drink of those cups ever again. And the only cup you will ever drink of is a cup of the fullness of his joy, the fullness of his peace. That is our hope. That is our, that is our cure. That is our encouragement in the midst of a life that just doesn't seem to work well. And this is what Jesus knew as he walked to his own death. If God knows all things, and if he controls all things, and, and he is good in all ways, what do you have to fear? You can face an army of opposition and say, what can you do to me? What are you looking for? What do you want? In Christ, you and I can face legions of opposition and be unafraid. He knows you. He has all the power to help you, and he is good. Rest in him. Trust in him. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.